So it's a really good socialising hotel. In terms of getting a good night's sleep, in terms of preparation for the big match? That's so. Is it a party Not hotel? So Is that what you're saying? Well, it will that, be when you're there, Chinch, because you are I'm known saying, as the real party starter. Really? Yeah. On sparkling water? <laughs> it's never going to happen. Seriously, I need a good night's sleep. I really do. What well, happens get... if you don't get one? You're very grumpy. Oh, I'm a, I'm a little bit bear with a sore head. I've stayed there and I've given up trying to do any work in my room. I've just basically gone and jo- take, taken my laptop, had a couple of drinks, joined the masses and yeah. sat in the bar working until, <laughs> until two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just gave if up. You can't, if gave... you can't beat him, join him, Chinch. Is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah. Some of my best work. <laughs> yeah, well, true, yeah. Has to improve with a drink, doesn't it? But anyway. Work for Hemingway. It's a... Oh, Ernest. Could yeah, be. Yeah. yeah, at times. Is there another Hemingway? Uh, is there another Hemingway? Was there an actress? No. Was there an actress, Hemingway? Other famous Hem- Hemingway. Yeah, I'm this sure there's content. another Hemingway. Anyway, yeah, Hemingway designer Hemingway. He used to be on This Morning with the catwalks. This morning. Yeah, and this morning they used to have the catwalk show with all the. I know the what people. you mean. Wayne. People never watch that. Wayne Hemingway. Wayne Hemingway. Is that right? Yes. Is this something? Is this important? You're thinking me of the red, the red or dead guy, aren't you? But was Hemingway his surname? Oh, Stephen, extra information. Red or dead? Is that? Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the brand he was. Uh, but you were talking about uh, Ernest Hemingway. Not Wayne uh, Hemingway is a thing. Is oh, it's a thing. Amazing. Yes, that's him, Wayne Hemingway. Yeah, Wayne Hemingway. Hemingway. But there's an actress as well, I'm sure. Hemingway. I once did an event with Wayne Hemingway. Did you? He had designed... Um, you wore one of his dresses? No, he had designed uh, buildings. Really? Yeah. He had d- designed a building. It was, it was some was sort of... Was it the Moxie Hotel in no, Stratford? No, it was the Moxie Hotel in Stratford. <laughs> Although I imagine his stamp of approval would be on that establishment because of its all-night raves. <laughs> Uh, but the, uh, yes, he, he redesigned some sort of uh, rundown area of somewhere, and um, yes, he regenerated it with uh, his buildings that he designed. And well, I was doing something, and I can't remember what. Well done, Wayne, Hem- Wayne Hemingway. That is a great anecdote. And this <laughs> <laughs> is Set Piece Spenny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Mr. Grumpy, Rory Smith, Mr. Forgetful, and Annie Hinchcliffe, Mr. Bump. The food today has already been eaten. Mm. They were sandwiches from our favourite Burton Road Bakery. And in fact, they are so favoured that they were eaten within a matter of seconds. Rory, you were very hungry. I, was, I didn't really have any breakfast. You savaged, <laughs> savaged your sandwich. I was quite shocked at how you, you ate that. Really? It was, yeah. I apologise. It was scary. I apologise wholeheartedly. For a man of your good looks and intelligence, I didn't expect you to eat a sandwich in that way. I was very hungry, Chinch. I, that was pretty obvious. Yeah. Yes, you were licking the plate. But, but also I, it's... Cut it in half, at least, then eat it. It was tuna mayo, mm. and it was sort of squelching out the sides a little bit. Yeah. Whereas I had actually ordered crawfish. <laughs> what are you? Crawfish. If possible. I couldn't Stephen believe that when Stephen said, I'm getting the sandwiches, what do you want? Can you get a crawfish sa- Who asks for I a crawfish cra- do sandwich? Like a, do you not like a crawfish sandwich? I'm not saying sandwich? I don't like it, but I'd never ask for it. Would you not? Because you just sound ridiculous. Wait, really? Waitrose's yes. best sandwich is their seafood sandwich, which is their cheapest sandwich, and it's essentially just yeah, crawfish. Yeah, ask, f- ask for a seafood sandwich, maybe, but not no, no, I crawfish. I didn't want a seafood sandwich. It's That'd made like up of crawfish. Saying Fake crab. Me asking for a ham sandwich, you'd be like, ask for a beef sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same thing. You're just never satisfied. And this from Chinch, who was asked if you'd like a sandwich and said no sandwich. What's wrong with you? Carbs. I just didn't want a sandwich. You, are you are you off the carbs? You no bread. Uh, yeah. No, I just didn't want a sandwich. It's okay. not a crime not to want a sandwich. I felt terrible because Steve was going to all the trouble of getting a crawfish sandwich for uh, 
for little Lord Fauntleroy over there. But <laughs> I just didn't. I just didn't want a sandwich. I well, really learnt my place in the pecking order when the uh, orders started coming through. Oh, make sure it's not got any tomato uh, or extra mayo for me. A bit of green salad, but crawfish if they've got it, crab if they haven't, or tuna if they absolutely have to. We know my stand on, on Insidious Tomato, Stephen. And you, yeah, I know you, I should have remembered that. You, no, you delivered. You delivered. You immediately sent me a message about saying, no Insidious Tomato, tick. Steve gets me. Steve gets me, chinch. But Insidious means that they're, they're, they're actively trying to get you. Yes. You feel that they are? Yes, tomatoes? The, t- the tomatoes are after They're me. They're sneaking up on him. Yeah. Okay. I feel uh, content is now being repeated. Uh, Chinch, mm. uh, we know what the food is, but do you know what the football is today? Yeah, I'm sure I... Yep. Yep, it's, we're talking about some aspects of football. Yes, we are. Over the next mm. two weeks, we'll be furnishing your podcast feeds with a two-parter. Yes, it's logistical necessity dressed up as thematic consistency. And we'll be discussing the modern footballing discourse between fans and the media and also between fans and other fans. Our conversation is prompted in part by a column recently written by Marina Hyde, who should know that we are stealing this idea in honour of her becoming the Sports Journalist Association Writer of the Year, not because we're lazy. Uh, so more on that in just a second. Chinch, consider yourself informed. Get in touch with the podcast via email at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just a couple of quickies today. This email is from Matt Newman. Chaps. Obligatory love the pod first sentence. Channel surfing my way through the Sky Sports the other day, I happened across an episode of the Premier League's Greatest Games that was showing the denouement to the 93-94 season relegation battle in the shape of Everton against Wimbledon. Having heard a number of references to it from Chinch over the pod years, I settled in. How on God's earth did Everton win that game? Limpar's rush of blood to concede the penalty and then diving to win slash cheat one back. The comedy clash of defenders in the box and an own goal for Wimbledon's second. In subsequent research that Rory would be proud of, I read that there were muted allegations of match fixing. But if the Holdsworth missed open goals were deliberate, they were done with such authenticity <laughs> that suggesting he faked it credits him with significantly more footballing ability than he had. My other immediate observation was the incredulity that David Unsworth was genuinely 19 in this game he looked mid-30s at the very least and as though he was chiselled out of granite a truly terrifying man obligatory keep up the good work closing sentence from Matt Newman in Twyford chiselled out of lard <laughs> he was he was no what he was well, we've talked about Rhino and that's why he was called Rhino because he was big but he was fast and he had a big horn <laughs> no he didn't um, I didn't play in the game did I I was at Sheffield United that day with, with Cami Kamara what fun we had there. Who played at left back in your stead? Um, don't know. <laughs> Who cares? If you're not in the team, you just would it turn your back, don't would, you? Would it have been... <laughs> that, is, that is hearty team member. <laughs> and when I heard the news that Everton had stayed up, boy, did I punch the air. <laughs> but you're happy, but you're not really happy, are you? Because, well, they've saved themselves, but you weren't part of it. It was Hans Sager's more than Holdsworth, wasn't it? Yeah, was, the, uh, yeah the goalkeeper was, Sager's, was, yeah. Uh, was, was considered it, to be the one at but it was more fault. To do, but, uh, hmm. It was more to do with the fact that Sager's was embroiled in another match-fixing scandal, which brought that into um, question, rather mm. than any particular, from memory, any particular, like, th- this was definitely fixed. Mm. Did uh, Limpard dive to win a penalty? He doesn't know. He's with Sheffield United. I've not watched it back. Why would I? Turn my back if I'm not in the team. (laughs) We've got a lot to talk about. So just one more from Tom Reutemann. Hi, gentlemen slash lads. I don't know where the uh, division is amongst the four of us. I've been off sick since November, says Tom, and therefore not only have the time to listen to eight hours a day of podcasts, five days a week, but also to put my mind to the occasional contribution. To that end, here are a couple of manager most likely twos. Mm, mm. I don't know whether... 
plural like comes in that. Manager most likely is two. Managers most likely two. Managers most likely two. This is Be when we. Uh, this is when we ask the question. By the way, if you're new to the podcast, uh, of who is the manager most likely to? With the answer not now being Sean Dyche, Graham Potter, or Nigel Pearson. So here are Tom's manager most likely to be the proud owner of the second most successful BMW dealership in Cheshire. Brendan Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> and two managers most likely to have a post-match drink and then decide to open a butcher's shop together. Dean Smith and Steve Bruce. Yes. <laughs> Even though one followed the other at Villa Park. Uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So then, uh, usually when we do multiple parter on setpiece menu, it's because of one of two things. Either we've got a lot to say on the matter or one of us has a holiday planned. Well, as it happens, it's both this time. Last month, one of our favourite writers, Marina Hyde, wrote in a column that was actually prompted by the Premier League winter break... Football fans detest talking about football. Honestly, anything to get away from it. She suggested that the break allowed fans to do something that they actually prefer to do, which was to talk about football-adjacent matters. I say talk, usually it's argue. Why is it that we don't seem to talk about football, actual football, anymore? It's VAR. It's FFP. It's not so much 442 or 433. Listen, we do not absolve ourselves of the former, but we like to think that we do plenty of the latter too. But if you watch the mudslinging on social media, it seems points are being scored by fans who seem to be less concerned about whether their team actually won any points that day. Next week, we'll talk about the conversation that fans are having with the media and what about what appears to be a significant erosion of trust. But today... It's the fan-on-fan fan crime and a conversation that seems to more and more not involve football to the extent, as Marina Hyde puts it, that it's just a MacGuffin, nothing more than a plot device. Why is it that we don't seem to talk about football, actual football, anymore? Because there's a limited amount you can say. But ne- if, if, next episode. If fans are more informed, all the stuff that you've mentioned there, via it's, it's all stuff around the game which affects the game, doesn't it? So yeah. our fans, rather than saying, well, my team or your team was great or poor, this is affecting it financial fair play or, or transfer fees or, or what coach you've got in charge but, or, or VAR. Isn't this because but, but points are being scored more to talk about. rather than say you've got a rubbish right back, points are being scored by saying you are bankrolled by um, an emirate with a dodgy... Or, or even more meta, the focus is on the behaviour of your fans rather than the performance of your team. So in some way, how your fans react to defeat or victory is a more kind of energising topic than the performance of players but I think I think to an extent it's probably always been true because with with a football with football itself there is a limit there is genuinely a limited amount you can say partly through lack of knowledge because not all of us can can sort of analyse a game tactically or, or, or assess a performance and ultimately the conversation he's played well no he hasn't he's played badly you can't do it as well as I can do but you, 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 you can you do can it to a degree I can't yeah, I stay, you, I stay you, away yeah. from tactics Chinch because I know nothing so about do I so, oh no I don't no I, I'm, I'm very very deep in tactics yeah or was oh, that Tic Tacs <laughs> yeah anyway tactics up to the eyeballs you are oh not half the um, but also there's a limit to what you can say about you know he played well or he's you know it, it's, it's a relatively contained subject it struck me, I was watching um, the Champions League a couple of weeks ago and the night that Spurs got knocked out by RB Leipzig and Deli Ali gave uh, the post-match interview to Reshman, uh, who's a very good interviewer. Reshman, we like Reshman a lot. My BT Sport colleague, yes. Yeah, she's your very BT good, colleague, yes. she's very good. Um, she's also increasingly ubiquitous. Yep. You're not nearly as ubiquitous as Reshman. Well, also a BBC colleague of both Stephen and Mike. As I say, ubiquitous. <laughs> Uh, but we like Reshman. Her ubiquity is a positive thing. Employed by FIFA and UEFA as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know this person, but... Uh, it sounds like there might be more than sounds one tremendous. Of the only people that she doesn't work for currently is Sky Sports, which is why that you would yes. not have come into contact she with No, she does talk sports. Well, does she? the Saturday uh, talk sports She does do talk sports, yes. Um, she Hi, did, Reshman. <laughs> she did Match of the Day 2 at one point. She did. She did, yeah. didn't she? Um, more than once. Yep. 
Is she better than Chappers? Probably. Have you moved into <laughs> agency work? No, but I think I could. No. Yeah, easily. Although, to be fair, Reshman does not need an yes, agent. I was gonna, well, she, she has an agent and they're doing fine, thanks. Ah, okay. Yeah. And, anyway. and there's no more work that she could do, so no, there's no point Rory working on her behalf. It's like Rob Harris from the AP, the, the journalist who became famous for um, asking Pep Guardiola questions that Manchester City fans didn't like. Uh, I'm increasingly convinced that there is more than one Rob Harris. Mm. <laughs> that he is, he's a bit like a McDonald's. He's a franchise. And you can, you can take over the Rob Harris name as long as you promise to ask penetrating questions. Is he and, like Paddy and then pa- go on CNN International to discuss them. He's like Paddy Power. You know, yeah, you finally yeah, yeah. find out that Rob Harris isn't a real person. It's just somebody playing the role yeah, of Rob yeah, Harris. Yeah. Rob Harris is, is a construct who types loudly at every press conference when it's yes. being recorded by the broadcast media. And you can just hear <laughs> Rob in the background going... Although he's not the loudest typist. Oh, who's the loudest? No, I'll tell you off air. All right, okay, fine. Um, I'm prepared to say that Rob is a very loud typist. He's a very loud typist, but also which one of them is the loud typist? Who well, knows? exactly. Do they well, do it on purpose, or is it because they have sausage fingers? Uh, he's just, just really emphatic about everything yes, he's doing. Yes, he's he very, must know what he's doing. He's very dedicated. He's playing the game, isn't he? But I think no. to be a franchise holder of Rob Harris, you have to be able to type loudly. I think that's, yeah, one, of yeah. the I think that's one of the qualifications. Not just yeah. asking difficult like questions. Like to be the franchise holder of a McDonald's, you've got to have a certain number of Happy Meals available to you with small toys in them. Anyway, the Deli Ali gave this interview to Reshman, and... I've forgotten where we were. I was going to say, you did well to get paid. (laughs) Well done, Rory. Very (laughs) focused. um, And he was very, very scathing of Spurs' performance. I was sort of half listening. And anyway, the the post-match discussion on BT Sport with with Lineker and Rio Ferdinand and two other people who I've forgotten was mainly like a review of his performance, as as though you were kind of... They were discussing the performance of someone playing Hamlet. Kind of, oh, he delivered that, delivered that line very well. And he, he was very good with that line. And he really hit to be or not to be, if that's mm. from Hamlet. Don't know, hate Shakespeare. The, um, the <laughs> <laughs> Likes classic, in fact, did a degree in classical Don't start poetry. Him off. Don't yet, start him off. Keep him on topic. Interested, interested until the birth of Christ, then you gave up, basically. Uh, well, no, it's not that. It's just anything, anything post 410 AD just doesn't count. <laughs> The, anyway, <laughs> all the words had been used by them. But you had, you which had, is actually um, the point he's making about football discourse. But you had this this qu- quite interesting performance from Spurs that was not 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 interesting in, in a good way, but one that was really worthy of analysis. But they spent a good five ten minutes talking about kind of how Delhi effectively comported himself, and that I guess knowing knowing that we were doing this podcast, that came to mind. Because I think that this whole tone is set by the way that football is distrust, the elements that are distrust in the in the media culture, and I know we're going to come to that next week. So there is a, a tendency to focus on referees. There always has been from managers. That's where it starts. Uh, VA, things like VAR obviously become big issues. We tr- we seem to try to avoid talking about football ourselves to some extent, and that then gets kind of that spreads out into the kind of the, the broader distrust of, of fans between themselves. And I wonder if that's partly a lack of education. But it would equally be that we feel that fans maybe don't we reflect what we feel fans don't want to, don't want to talk about. And the fun, one of the funny things is you always get these um, you always get fans on social media saying to you you know you should ask questions just about football. And managers managers say why don't you ask me any football questions? I've asked managers tactical questions. They do not answer them. They will not answer them because that is to reveal more than they want. No, to. it's it, that's what they say, but right, it's I not. See. It's not to it's. It's not to reveal more than they want to. It's not, you're not asking them for state secrets. You're not saying to them before a game, you know, so, Pep, what are you going to do about their left-back? No one ever asked that question because you know full well that they wouldn't expect yeah. them to answer that. Post-game, you try and get a manager to explain what they did. The, it's not 
I'm, I don't want to reveal state, se state secrets. It is, at best, you are a complete moron and you wouldn't understand my wonderful science. This is utterly beneath you. Why would I even bother getting onto this yeah. topic? And it is part of the contrary nature of the way that we cover football in this country in, in that we've never really done in-depth tactical stuff and there is a whole host of reasons about it P partly due to the fact that the access that we get to the managers yeah. to the key players is so infrequent compared to other parts of certainly western europe and you know big big leagues where they get to speak to the managers on a much more regular basis so they have the time and they have the column inches to be able to do these deep dives whereas in in the uk we never have had that opportunity so we have to use those precious 10 or 15 minutes you might get to twice a week with the manager to, to drill into the, the critical points that you know are going to give you talking points for the next few days because you don't know when your next opportunity to ask those questions is going to be. But the other thing is, Steve's absolutely right, the other thing is that a lot of the, reason, a lot of the time the reasons managers don't answer tactical questions is because the bit of the game that proved decisive was not a bit they meant to happen. Which is why the, the, the genre of tactics journalism as it, is, as it currently exists, to me, can be very well done but is basically intellectually bankrupt. Because, well, because it's guesswork. If because you don't you can't... know what they were trying to do, you cannot assess their tactics. So Chinch, for mm. example, would know that one of his, uh, his strike sports colleagues, Danny Higginbotham, very often goes into clubs during the week, before games he does, to establish what the managers are trying to do. Now, I, I think Danny's the only person who does that. I don't know anybody else at strike sports who does that. Do you, Chinch? Um, watching training sessions, to me, would be pointless. I've been asked to go and do it. Mm. But if you're standing there watching a training session, the coach is not going to put on sessions that will tell you anything no. significant. So basically, they wouldn't. They'd wait until you're gone yeah, yeah. to do what they want to do. But no, I was so watching a team play is how I understand how a team plays. I, it just makes more sense to watch them on a match day. I was being facetious, because I know I know full well that you will speak to people from the clubs before games to get a general idea of what they're trying to do to find out what's on the menu uh, in the press room before. A lot of it isn't because if you do your homework, you should kind of know the personnel, the formations, because the coaches of previous ten games they will have played all manner of ways, suspensions and injuries. So you kind of should know that's part of the job. So actually, I don't speak to them about who's in the team. I don't want to know your team because I can probably guess what 10 of your 11 will be anyway because I've done my homework. I know what system you're probably going to play. It's more the stories around. I remember speaking to Graham Potter when he was at, um, at Swansea about Dan James mm. and the work he was doing on Dan James because of his pace getting into the, the final third, working on his composure and his delivery. That to me was more interesting because yeah. it's insight that you can't get anywhere else and a coach telling you, we know how quick he is, but we're working on that that final delivery because that's all important for a player like him. So it's not saying, well, is Dan James playing? Where is he playing? Why are you playing him there? Who are you going to play around him to get the best out of him? It was th th that little bits of insight that tell me, and then you can pass that on to the view. I find that really interesting yeah. because he's got everything else and a coach is saying, right, I need to refine what I'm doing with this one player to get the best out of him. So I don't tend to, I never ever, I think all the guys that I work with as well, because we do our homework, we never ever ask for the team because we probably yeah. know what it's going to be anyway yeah. and you should do if you've done your homework it's more the you know the feeling in the club is with certain with certain players you know again how do you train certain players are you you know what kind of training have you done this week to lead into the game yeah. it's that insight that you they will tell you if you ask them but it's I, I just I just don't ask them about tactics because they're probably not going to tell you anyway they don't want to give anything away and to me I probably know what you're going to do Anyway, and we, we overdo the tactics side of it as well because we, we look at games and why things happen and we say, oh, that guy clearly saw what was happening over there, saw the space and that's what... A lot of it with football is you ask them after a game, how did that happen? And they say, 
have no idea. It was just instinctive. Yeah. A lot of it isn't down to this fantastic awareness of what's going on around them. It's just something that they instinctively do well because they're very good footballers. And, and, the, and on the basis of what Chinch and I do in particular, in terms of the 90 minutes of the game, well, your, your priority has got to be what is happening in that match. Absolutely, you can inform yeah. yourself yeah. before and again afterwards to enhance your knowledge of those teams or the way that the game is played or tactical innovations but ultimately you know once the game kicks off it's from my point of view it's what's happening as a commentator Mm -hmm. from Chinch's point of view as a co-commentator it's the why if you allow yourself to get too bogged down in some of the narrative stuff around the game you're going to start missing the bit that you are there to provide I guess there are other people in the industry including yourself who are there wrapping around the Mm -hmm. game who can dedicate a bit more time and have the space and and the facilities and they can do that in the studio discussion as well to analyze further the bigger picture stuff but if you get too bogged down in it during a game you're going to lead yourself down a path a a narrative trying to offer an explanation for the bigger picture and you're not actually there to do that are you other people are there to do that we're there to to commentate on the game and analyze the game it's the same you know give you another example sometimes yeah if you're doing a Bundesliga game and there's a player playing in the match who's been linked with a with move to the Premier League well Obviously, you're going to mention that you've informed yourself during the build-up to the week that this player has been watched by scouts from the Premier League, has been linked, and you might be watching him from a point of view of, you know, well, this is why... If he does something brilliant, you, you will say, well, that's why so many of the big clubs across Europe are interested in signing him. You will almost immediately get criticism from fans of the club you're commentating on. Why are you linking our players with moves elsewhere? Well... No, that's already been done. Yeah. But I can't ignore that it's happening. Yeah. But equally, that I'm not going to allow the fact that that player might be leaving at the end of the season to, to drive the narrative of the commentary. Yeah. It's what he's doing in the game is the most mm-hmm. important thing. So uh, uh, are we essentially saying that it's kind of our fault that, that fans don't talk to each other about football anymore? It's actually partly that and partly that more conversations happen. So therefore, the diversification of that those conversations are going to be wider and wider and they, if they if they have to engage with each other and particularly on social media there's not a lot of restraint so if you are engaging with a fan of another team you will essentially not go to you've got a rubbish right back is the example given or you shouldn't have been playing 4-3-3 or it was interesting that you had overlapping fullbacks that didn't do a very good job and they were caught out of position you're not going to have conversations like that you're going to have a com- conversation about something else you're going to s- point score on elements that sit adjacent to football because there isn't actually, as you say, Rory, that much to talk about. The media find it difficult to talk about it, particularly during a game. And so therefore, this mostly happens outside of the 90 minutes of a game. And it's going to be, the crucible is is so much bigger I think that you're actually going to have trouble sticking to football. I think that it's the, the as, as what Chinch and Steve says, illustrates that the game itself exists as 90, as 90, 90 minutes once or twice a week as a kind of isolated thing, but football, kind of the the soap opera, the business, the the sport, the sport is the sport happens on a pitch for ninety minutes and then it's kind of over. And you might have you, you will get you to be fair, you will get fans debating whether, you know, their team deserved to win or they were robbed or whatever, that that is part of the game and that is about football. It might not be particularly high level discourse, but it's about the football. Um and I think you should probably throw in kind of refereeing mistakes and all that stuff. That is it. That is about the action on the pitch. But football has become such an all-consuming leisure activity that that's not enough to sustain the conversations through the week. And that's where you get these football-adjacent topics that come in. And I think it's important. You can take social media as a as too much of a sort of test case. You have a lot of people on social media who's, and this isn't a criticism, who go on 
to social media, you log on the first time and the, their identifier is their football team. They are there to talk about their football team and increasingly, they, I think, after a while, they are there to defend their football team. And that is a seven-day-a-week operation that, and occupation. That, that is is a, it talk about their own to be able to run down the opposition? The, it, well, the two things seem to be to go hand-in-hand hand, almost, to be is honest. Is it a 50-50 split or is it... I don't know. It, it, I think it probably depends on. It probably varies on the status of the team. Yeah. So well, I think that defence is to attack. So yeah, yeah, if they yeah, are yeah. defending their own team, it is to attack yeah. somebody else. Yeah, yeah. It's, but to it's do what about to do yeah. that, you have to over the course of twenty four. You know, twenty four seven. You have to. You can't restrict yourself to your team's performance on the pitch and your team's opponent's performance on the pitch. So you use all the ammunition you can, and that goes spread through. We, you we didn't used to have a 24-7 conversation, I suppose. That's the major difference. Yeah, that's probably really right. Yeah, yeah. That it, it felt like it. We've, done, we've talked about this before, that it, it felt like football happened at the weekend. You had a couple of days to mm. review it, and then you looked forward to the next game. That's what, that was what the experience of being a fan was. Yeah. Going Whereas, to school on the Monday morning. Yeah. Now it's going to school on the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday. You're just the always Thursday, at school. Right. You're constantly surrounded by these people, and it's not... It's, you're not even at your stall. You're, you're kind of exposed to all these people from other stalls, and they all hate you. And that that has turned the, the conversation into something broader. But then I think you can't ignore the fact that there are much broader currents buffeting football as football's become bigger business and has become more of a sort of cultural phenomenon. There's far more complex issues that become relevant. So as, as like occasionally, and I don't want to talk about Man City ever again, but um, does it, I'm tired of dealing with the same sort of 150 fans who shout at you every time you mention them in anything that's not sort of glowing terms. Well, I'm going to talk about Manchester City in a second, but so you do your bit, not I, do mine. I do occasionally sit and look at my Twitter feed. I'll be sat on my sofa sort of looking at Twitter and thinking, why am I reading a conversation, not even involved in conversations, I don't really, I try not to engage as much as possible. Why am I watching a conversation between a journalist, normally mid-out, <laughs> and, and like, a, like, a, like a chartered accountant from North Manchester arguing about human rights in the Gulf. Like, I think if you're, if, I think if you're going online and researching the human rights, the, you know, the pros and cons of various human rights regimes of various states, because you're annoyed that your football team's being criticised, you possibly need to think, this is occupying too much of my life, if, if I'm completely honest. And that's some, as someone who works in football, or I work in a football-adjacent industry. You, you do indeed. Um, as do we all. As do we all. So we are being massively hypocritical, probably. But I think that the football now has become such a big cultural phenomenon and it ties into so many different, different currents and tides around the world that this stuff all feels relevant and that there is also this, this football industrial complex that w- of which we are all very much a part that needs stuff to talk about all of the time and that brings those topics in. Um, partly because they're relevant but partly because we need something to talk about and that has created this environment in which there's a limited amount of conversation you can have about football before it gets very repetitive and even kind of the most sort of belligerent people on Twitter would probably say do you know what? We probably just have to agree to disagree here. I think the left back played well, and you don't. So I mean, I don't quite understand. Why do you keep mentioning left backs? Just generally, they're the most important players on the pitch. Actually, I deliberately oh, said right backs twice, just so that it wasn't about you. But because you, yeah. you, you are not divisive. Not saying it's about Every, me, but everybody just, agreed that you, you were below par. Most thanks. But you just tend to say left back when you talk about a, a player's performance. You just naturally say left back, which uh, I'm just There's interested. The most important player on the pitch yeah. is that the, yeah. that's right. where the conversations okay. are changed. Okay. So I wonder if, if if it's an offshoot of that that kind of there's a limited amount you can say about football. And there's a 24/7 news environment that you have, where you have, people feel they have to keep talking. When we started doing this, I think we were aiming to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Having a more sort of detached, 
intellectual conversation about you mean the aspects podcast, of football. Not the this podcast, conversation. Not yeah. this podcast. No, not this particular <laughs> the episode. <laughs> the the podcast, Our podcast. Prior to episode one. But I suppose in many ways we are contributing to this huge wash of information associated to football that there is now. The more popular that football becomes beyond just the match day experience, the more people are talking about it, writing about it, making their points on social media. And the harder and harder it is to stay on top of everything. Mm. You know, I can't read everything that you write for the New York Times in the same way that you can't watch every game that I commentate on. I do watch every game. No, I know that you don't. And I that do is a much bigger time commitment than Stephen yeah. reading everything. That you That's why I don't read any of your articles or watch any of your game series. It's better <laughs> to do better none of it than to try to keep up with what you're doing because I, you're so busy and talented. It, it's, it's you're not quite Reshman, but you're still I'm very trying, busy. I'm trying, I've got I, fences to build and gardens to mow. I can't be arsing around it, reading. It, and in the same way as I make sure to be at every single one of Hugh's public appearances. Yes, it's true. There's not he's, that many. He's though, always there. Fair, a cheerleader from table 68, is right it, at the yeah. back. You could try and watch every single appearance Hugh makes on BBC News, but there are other things to get on with during the course of a day. Yeah, like and, breathing. And even, even if you just said... Uh, I play a change. Even if you just take those who are doing a really good job writing interesting, in-depth stuff about football... Neil Tostis. Yep. That's the sort of thing. You're not going to be able to consume it all. No. So you are self-filtering information. And the easiest way to self-filter is the stuff that you believe is most relevant mm -hmm. to the conversation around your club. You're not going to take the broad spectrum. Because even, even if you wanted to, and a lot of football fans wouldn't have that desire, it, it would just be impossible to take yeah. it all in. So you're going, you, you're going, the bubble is being created and we are contributing yeah. to it because we're offering, there's almost too much on offer. So how can you absorb it all? Well, you're going to take the stuff that really piques your interest. So yeah, that is true. But what really, so there's three things that football fans should just concentrate on. Have we got any kind of advice? Stevens, okay, there's, there's so Stevens much out commentary, there. Rory's articles and Chinch's commentary. Absolutely, but I'm going to say, but then is, is it just out, Hugh? Is it concentrate firstly on the game, the players? That's no. that's well, I think and we shouldn't. I think we probably should avoid sort of saying what fans should do, shouldn't we? Like no, but I'm saying if, you, if you're trying to say there's so much out there and we're all getting confused with this and we think it's all part of the game, I suppose, isn't yeah. it? So it's not wrong to be interested but, in all these things. So that's it. The, but the, if it's if it's kind of sidetracking you from what is surely really important about being a fan. But our fans, obviously, the, the way that they consume and enjoy the game, it becomes it's such a variety of ways to do that that you can't say that there is kind of three basic things you should really be most well, interested we, in for your team. We've said before, haven't we, that it, it often feels as though the football season gets in the way of the, the real business of the transfer window. That's, mm -hmm. th that, that, has, that is now a fairly well-worn well trope, not just on set-piece menu, but across the media who stole it from us. Um, but increasingly, and I, th I think this point, the point Marina made, that it does feel as though the, fo the actual matches can get in the way of the real business of talking about you know, whether your, f your club is funded mm. correctly or whether your, your sporting director is good enough or whether the, your rivals have got awful fans or whatever. So how is, why is that, hap that happening? Oh, the, the information is available, so because you can consume it, but why, why are you keener on that than the actual game? Why is that well, happening? I think there's certain circumstances, to me, and it's just a theory, there's certain circumstantial things, which are one is the information is available, as Steve says. One is that um, we are now having this sort of permanent conversation with each other all of the time yeah. in which you're exposed to different views. I think that it's, it, 
it's part of the kind of saturation level that football's reached where it's kind of all football all the time. So it's not the case that by Wednesday of the week, you've forgotten about your team losing at the weekend and you're looking forward to the fact that, you know, they're going to beat Southampton at the, at the following Saturday. Probably everybody, quite, everybody. Well, probably, if, probably, if, probably if you've quite got heavily. Southampton away, there's yeah. a very good chance you're going to win probably, the game. Probably quite or at home. Yeah, embarrassingly. Mm. Like Ralph Hasselhoff, though. But the other thing is, and I think this is a really important... <laughs> little code there for Rory. This <laughs> is I'm going to crucify your team over the course of 20 seconds. Oh, by the way, like I like Ralph. Ralph. I like the manager's drive gloves the um the don't criticize Ralph and calves the excellent he just looks like a nice man anyway he's a nice man the i prefer the hair he's got this season as well the um but the, the crucial thing is the big thing to me change yes is i think people don't like football that much as a sport i think there's a there's there's a there's a set of fans who are really wrapped up in the identity of being a football fan and in the soap opera of it for mm-hmm. definite yeah and i i think that's that that's probably one of the crucial driving factors is that it's it's a different thing, and you see it with different. Um, you see it in, in in crisis moments. We talked about coronavirus last week. I think the kind of the Man City FFP thing is is quite a good example of it as well. Liking football and supporting your club are not necessarily the same thing. There are lots of people whose view on Man City, Man City's FFP, Ferrago, is based on the fact that they support a team and not that they like football. Because if you like football, something is the solution is different or the, the, what's right is different to if you support a team. But I think a lot of people can kind of take or leave a football match, to mm-hmm. be honest. But what they really like is the chance to state an ident- to, to claim an identity through a football club or to, to follow the soap opera of it, which is why it often feels that fans celebrate signings more than they do matches mm-hmm. that they've won. And it also feels as though there's almost a break in... If you look at yeah, if you look at Twitter, like during games, my timeline certainly becomes very kind of factual, rather than the constant streaming of of different opinions, which and that's just me and Miguel. The the <laughs> and it's interesting is it's almost as though everyone kind of waits for the football to be out of the way, and then it's a bit like right, well that's done, so we can they get, get back to it. Yeah. But it, an example of that is is where football is almost a construct that helps them behave in that way or allows them to have those conversations and not necessarily the reason why they're doing it, i.e. they are they are emotionally tied to the narratives and the storylines, not necessarily emotionally tied to the 90 minutes that happens. Is that If you are a fan who goes to an away game, if it's an away game in Europe or a long journey, you will often be so drunk by the time that the game happens, the game that you have spent a lot of money getting a ticket for and a lot of money getting to, you don't actually remember very much of what happens in that game because it, the, the, the reason that you are doing what you are doing is to be with your fellow fans and to travel yeah. and to be a, a representative of that club. And, and it, the 90 minutes almost matters. So it's um, being part of the tribe but le- actually less than the game. anything else. Yeah, mm. and that's, the, that's what we're talking about, the identity. Yeah. And we've talked about the kind of the performative nature of fans these days. And I said I was going to mention Manchester City. Mm. Um, there was a case after the um, derby where a colleague of mine, um, Danny Jackson, who, who works for the club and is a as hard and... Hardened City fan as you will you wish to meet. Ardent. Ar- hardened and ardent. Ardent. A hardened mm. uh, fan of Manchester City. They were coming on the tram back from uh, Old Trafford and they were trying to make the point that losing the derby because of how Manchester United had celebrated winning the derby, losing the derby didn't matter to them and they were singing on these trams on the way home. He posted that and then he got a whole load of City fans criticising him for saying, no, it does matter because it was a game that Manchester City lost to Manchester United and it should be something that you are feeling disappointed about, not celebrating or saying that you don't care about. So even amongst 
groups of fans who support the same club, there seems to be division and a and a and a difficulty in in just accepting two different. Well, points if you of look view. at if you look at Arsenal, there was a, a huge schism amongst the fan base in the final few years of Wenger between the pro and anti groups that I think to an extent probably served to undermine Unai Emery. Does though this is again just a theory, but I think that once a, a fan base becomes politicised over an issue, it's very hard for that energy to dissipate even once that, en- once that issue is resolved. You saw it at Liverpool over Hicks and Gillette and Benitez, that, that that was a fractured fan base basically, I think, until roughly the 2016 Europa League final. That was seven or eight years where people were, were either anti-FSG or pro-FSG or anti-Hicks and Gillette or pro-Hicks but anti-Gillette, pro-Daldleish but anti-Daldleish. But, you know, there was lots of different things. Everyone coalesced around Suarez, which it turned out was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> the, but it happened, so it happened at Liverpool, and it, and it stuck for a while. It took a long time for those, those fractures to, to disappear. Arsenal, I think, to an extent, is still a fractured fan base. What, three, four years after? Three years after Wenger left. Two. Only two since Wenger left. Jesus, that's dragged. Um, Arsenal have been crap since. They've just gone, they, they've gone up and down so often, it feels like it should be it at feels least like about three. 12 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, in a, you're in a bit of Emery, and then... Uh, oh, yeah, and then Arteta. Jesus Christ. Anyway... Should stop blaspheming. That might offend people. I do apologise. Uh, the um, the sweet Vishnu and uh, <laughs> just, just 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 make sure you offend everybody all equally. The it's all fine. But that the fractured fan base at Arsenal then attached itself to Emery when he came in. So yeah, it, it, it kind of affected it. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And the, you kind of have these debates over, and then there'll be fractures over Cronky and how people think they should deal with with the with the KSE involvement and all that. Once you have a fractured fan base, it, it's really hard for that energy to, to dissipate. You saw it with Villa. There were must there was a lot of clubs. This must Villa, be the case. Villa yeah. fans fighting each other mm. at the Carabao Cup final, yeah. which is why I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, I'm not quite sure what you can be arguing about but if you're a Villa fan. Is that because there was like a Red Bull fraction and a Carabao faction, and they like, been, couldn't yeah, decide yeah, yeah. which was the best and energy then, drink then to get you through the, the, the game? Monster people came in, <laughs> yeah. wandering with their around. massive cans. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the point that we're trying to make here is that that. It, it's bad, isn't it? Some of the, some bad, of the conversations but but that these fans are having, even amongst their own fan base, is bad. But you didn't let me explain why this happened. And it's because, it's partly social media thing, it's because we have the opportunity now to, to express our opinions publicly, effectively to publish our opinions, which makes you in some way attached to those opinions. So that opinion becomes part of your online identity, which is increasingly part of your real-life identity. So you are, you are not just an Arsenal fan. You are a pro-Wenger mm-hmm. Arsenal mm-hmm. fan. That is your identity, and that is a much more important thing to defend than an opinion you hold about a football manager. It becomes part of who you are, so you have to fight for it. And it's not a surprise particularly that that, that battle should spill from online into real life. Does it, is, it becomes an, an identity issue for you. But it's not just in football this happens. This is a reflection of society as a whole. We've talked about loads about how football has been the precursor to some of the other things in society. Well, this is probably one of those occasions where it's happening elsewhere at the same time in that you've got the Democratic primary in the United States where you are not just a, a Democratic Party supporter, you are a Democratic party supporter on the progressive wing or on the moderate wing. And it seems like you cannot be both. You have to be one or the other. And trying to unify those two different factions after Biden or Bernie Sanders wins the nomination for the general election against Donald Trump seems to be the biggest question uh, which overarches this entire debate. So you can't just be, I'm a Democratic Party supporter. You have to be part of it. It's like your Wenger supports being an Arsenal fan. Being an Arsenal fan is not enough. What type of Arsenal fan are you? What type of Arsenal fan? What type of Democrat are you? And you might also be in a situation where you despise the other wing of your own side than you do the other side, which is a completely yeah. defi- self-defeating way of going because about it. Because your ultimate loyalty 
is to yourself and your identity. So it 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 gets to the stage where you don't necessarily want the team to win and you to be wrong. It's your beliefs winning out. Yeah. And the cannot more, dilute your position. And the more you have that ability to filter the information that's coming your way, the narrower that filter possibly becomes. Because as having said that there is so much information available, it's impossible to absorb it all because of the greater depth we're going into in terms of our coverage, the more supporters are becoming aware perhaps of the political issues surrounding their club or the league within which their club plays, uh, the more that they are entrenching themselves in that position. So you get the thing with Romelu Lukaku playing for Inter, being racially abused by Cagliari Ultras. You would think the Inter fan base would rally around behind Lukaku, but no, because the Italian Football Federation come down hard on the, or as hard as they should have done, but punish Cagliari to an extent. The inter-ultras come out in support of the Cagliari ultras, which I don't think too many people saw coming. And we've got this situation ongoing in Germany at the moment where the Hoffenheim owner, Dietmar Hoff, and that is one of your articles I did read, Rory, Thank so you, I would Stephen. just encourage people to go and they can get their background from there. But again, German football fans following Borussia Dortmund's ban, supported ban from going to Hoffenheim for the next two seasons, rather than rather than sort of feeling quite pleased with themselves, everybody else, oh, Dortmund, their fans are all in trouble, will enjoy that. No, instead, ultra fan groups from other clubs have come out and said, well, if you're going to ban them, you're going to have to ban us. We're going to do the same thing. And you, and you end up with this situation where it's spiralling out of control. And we, we saw with the, the game between Hoffenheim and Bayern getting delayed because of the banners that the, the Bayern supporters had in their section of the, the crowd and, and Bayern coming out as a club and criticising their own fan base. Well, a week later, in response, those fans are saying, oh, well, hang on a second. What that cause that you were criticising us for demonstrating against, what about that sponsorship money you accept for Qatar? Are there only some political issues you're willing to, yeah. to get involved about and speak out of it. So actually, the problem exacerbates because these groups of people are suddenly so well informed now about the issues beyond just how well is our left-back play. But there's a, there's a crucial- Again, left-back! <laughs> but so it seems to be that people's beli- are not necessarily connected to the football that's been played on the pitch. It more seems to be more politicised and more you're either for or against even in your, within your own fan base that surely's got to be really dangerous hasn't it if you if again it's you can both seemingly support the same team or club but actually you don't in essence because you're not the same mind as I am and that must be happening at Virtually every club, Actually, these issues come up. To borrow Hugh's example of kind of left-wing politics, if you look at the search for purity, both within Labour in Britain and, and the kind of the progressive one of the Democrats in the US, the part of the issues that, issue that they've got, and again, very much not a politics expert, is that there is this quest for purity. If you have any kind of, if there is any part of your personal political makeup that is not right, you are. That's it. You, you might be 99% yeah. right, but, but if you're, if you're not, not 100%, 100% it's the purity got. test they call it. Well, the clubs yeah, are the going to end up eating themselves if this well, the, carries the on. The fan bases might become... It's, it, I suppose one of, the thi- one of the things we've seen across society in the last 10 years is it's really hard to hold broad churches, like broad coalitions of people together. Maybe, to be fair, I've not thought of that before, maybe that applies to, to fans as well. The German example that Steve brings up is really interesting. Does That is a, a, a football culture where fans will work together in the interests of other fans. So you get, yeah, you get the, the Gladbach Ultras and the buying ultras and I think it happened at Cologne and stuff as well and further down Duisburg maybe and places like that uh, was, was that the club with the banner that said uh, if we don't win we're going to insult Dietmar Hopp too <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> like they, they're, they're even sort of finding yeah. dark humour in it the, but they, they will act on each other's behalf they will say this is 
this is what's in the interests of fans as a whole, rather than this this benefits our club. And I have to say, I don't think that's a stage we've reached in England. I think it's this is a really really horrible example, and I'm not in any way condoning the message. But even the Lukaku example, the ultra code is, and I'm currently reading thirteen twelve, which is James Montague's book on ultras, and it is amazing. Uh, the, the ultra code is that what comes ahead of the football team is loyalty to the, the brotherhood of ultras. So they will. the reason the, in, the inter-ultras came out in defence of the Calgary ultras, despite the fact that what the Calgary fans did was abhorrent, and I'm sure the inter-ultras would think they are, and they are not racist, or certainly a section that would think that they weren't being racist. There is, a, there is a right-wing section of the inter-ultras who would proudly be declared racist. Um, is that Their loyalty is not to the football team, it is to, the, is to ultrahood. And I think that that can have horrible negative effects, as it did in France when at the start of the season we saw all those homophobic banners, which was because the government had said, you're not allowed to use homophobic language. The ultras came out and said, well, we don't have homophobic banners. But not because they particularly wanted to be homophobic, but because their view is, we will say whatever we like and you cannot police us. Yeah. And any kind of attempt to police ultras is seen as negative even when it's perfectly sensible, like saying you can't use homophobic language. Of course you can't use homophobic language. Don't be ridiculous. Don't use homophobic language. Don't be homophobic. The ultras don't see it like that. They see it as a sort of civil, liber- a civil liberties thing, just they have this anarcho-nihilist view of life. It's the same in Italy. That's why the, r- the racism gets defended by, by other ultra groups, even when it's against one of their players. Those are the negative manifestations of it. But there is a really positive one, and that's the one in Germany, where, where fans will say, you shouldn't be banning Dortmund fans collectively because you said you weren't in a collectively banned fans anymore, so we're all going to protest. We don't have that in England, and I think that is partly why we seem to have a particularly uniquely toxic atmosphere amongst otherwise reasonable fans. And as well as that narrowing of opinions, I think there's also an aspect of the way that football has grown, is to use Manchester City as an example. When I first moved to Manchester just over 20 years ago, Manchester City cared about Manchester United. That was their rivalry. They weren't really worried about how Manchester United were being reflected in the local press compared to them because the coverage was pretty equally shared. In fact, I seem to recall that the MEN at the time was considered a bit more of a pro-City paper by United fans, but there wasn't really any animosity. And the only time that there was a, a sense of rivalry was on those derby occasions. Well, now all of a sudden, Manchester City are part of the big six, so they are worried that their fan base is looking at how they are compared to the other clubs within the big six, not just Manchester United. And then there's also this thing where there's this detachment between the big six and everyone else. So how are we spoken about compared to how some of the smaller clubs are spoken about and vice versa? The smaller clubs are, well, why are they getting all of the coverage? If, if, if what happened in that game between two of the big six had happened in our game between 13th and 14th, no one would be speaking about it. I'll just, you know, There'd be no VAR controversy about that incident because no one's interested in filling the column inches with it. So there are more and more rivalries and more and more reasons to feel a disconnect with what you're seeing in the media because you are looking for those things in so many different places. It's no longer just about your local rival. You've suddenly got rivalries all over the country because you are comparing yourself to more clubs than you ever used to. But I wonder as well whether part of the the football-adjacent thing that started to take place is that fans are are much more concerned generally now, not with football as a a game, but what people seem to talk a a lot about is how football is reported on. There seems to be a lot of time spent... Yeah, yeah covering 
how football is reported. And I, I, had the, I wrote about, I, from the Manchester Derby of the week, I wrote a piece about Bruno Fernandes. It was part, partly about Bruno Fernandes, Steve didn't read it, and partly about Fred. Did I? Re- no, 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 I didn't I've, read that I, one. I, I read I've that got one. to the point, and it just keeps asking me to input my email address so I, just cause I, so I can it. read it. So I'm just going to wait until next it. month, I'll read it then. But I wrote a piece about Bruno Fernandes and the kind of galvanising effect he'd, he'd had on Man United and contrasted that with Fred, who's much more of a slow burner, but is now actually a really, has become a really important player for them. And what that tells you about squad building and stuff. And got this response saying, typical Liverpool Man United media bias. I'm thinking, well, that's not one of the more famous biases, is it? Towards Liverpool and Manchester United. And <laughs> it's a real half and half <laughs> scar <laughs> mainstay. <laughs> <laughs> Twins separated at birth. And the, um, the, yeah. And this guy saying, you know, basically you're kind of over the Fernandes effect. Whereas Bukayo Saka, the Arsenal, the very promising Arsenal left back, you don't see him getting this sort of praise. And I was a bit like, well, I responded eventually just saying that's not really a famous bias, but I was trying to think, to him, well, maybe, maybe Bukayo Saka's not had that much impact. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe he's a good player and he's doing well for you, but he's not kind of transformed your season. So maybe that's the difference. But to that Arsenal fan, very obviously, everything came through the, the prism of how are Arsenal being covered and is it fair? That, ar- that article had nothing to do with Arsenal. And, and, and he's drawing a comparison between Arsenal's young emerging left-back who when he's done something brilliant, people have said, oh, he's that good. was brilliant. Yeah. But you wouldn't compare, think to compare him and a creative attacking midfielder who's just cost in excess of £50 yeah, the, million. Pounds. The point you wanted to make was about Bruno Fernandes and Fred. Why yeah. would you, again, if you wanted to talk about Arsenal, you'd probably talk about yeah. him yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, the thing you were writing was not about Arsenal. No, so why go looking for some more? You're not writing about Arsenal. Yeah, it's but, because I'm not writing about Arsenal. It's because of the filter bubble effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, talking yeah, about. This fixation that people have, I think, or they're, they're among a certain section of fans, on, not on football itself, but on how football is covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is leading beautifully onto next week's conversation. Um, because we're a, uh, a two-parter, no soccer story today. Uh, there will be one next week, so cross your legs and just hold on until then. And I'm talking about you, Chinch. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue finding room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Rory and Andy. And to you all for listening, we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. It's not easy for me to cross my legs because my thighs are quite sizable and I've got childbearing hips. So it doesn't really... I have to kind of... What do you do when you need a loo and you, you've not got I any just prospect got the toilet. of going to the, the toilet? Ledge um, under, the, the ledge under the table is quite low as well, isn't it, Chin? So, it it know, is a little bit, yeah. But when I, I, don't, I, I can't, crossing my legs is not an, an easy process for me. I have to kind of adjust my body slightly just to fling one leg over the other. So, but I, again, not really something we should be talking about Funny here, enough, the, um, the... I have a problem with my symphysis pubis. I think I've mentioned it before. You have done indeed, yeah, yeah. which is different to your autographed patella tendon. Um, the <laughs> patella tendon autograph? <laughs> no, no, it's the one that you have that has been signed by your... Oh yeah, that one. Um, the, uh, the, the studio <laughs> desk. Still one of my um, centuries, <laughs> Uh, the studio let's get the, BB, the BBC as well the Five Live is, is, is very low and so I like to feel comfortable when, when reading or performing anything on the radio and I like to cross my legs to, to feel relaxed, relaxed. And comfortable. Yeah, yeah. but I have to sidle 90 degrees to one that's side that's it that's it uh, just that's to do it. that to be fair to listeners it, when Hugh does cross his legs he does make the sound he's just made which was a sort of weary old man that's true it takes a lot of effort it what, really what, does listen a couple of years time Roy you'll be grunting at things that you didn't think you'd ever grunt at Oh my God! Listen to him. What's your What's your natural sitting? Is it? A, it's not a stance, is it? What's it? When you do a natural bit, do you do that weird cross one leg over the? You know when you put one foot on the opposite knee. It's kind that. of yeah. That's a bit of a. This is good I can't do that because my uh, no, this is my patella tendon. Um, I was I was, I, I was like that. I was a foot on knee guy. Were you until recently? Because I think because of my sort of 
rough and tumble Yorkshire upbringing, I've been told that crossing your legs in a slightly tighter, neater fashion was more effeminate. But now I realise that it's actually just a lot more comfortable and I like doing it. So I'm doing it now naturally and have been for 20 minutes. Well, Steve is, he displays his legs. Any he's a man spreader, isn't he? Definitely a man spreader. A man spreader. Lads, this is like when people review food on the radio. Utterly pointless.